Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The wildly popular fiction podcast, Welcome to Night Vale, is coming to town this week. And later this hour, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with the show star Cecil Baldwin. But first, forget Batman and Robin. A dynamic duo of mega-talent is coming to Atlanta for one night only, Tuesday. Actor Alan Cumming and NPR All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will perform an evening of stories and songs titled Oak and Oi a considered cabaret at center stage on Tuesday. It is a delight to welcome them now via Zoom. Thank you for joining me for City Lights. We're so excited to be here. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks, Louise. So is Oak the equivalent of Oi? I think, Alan, you should take that one. (laughs) Well, Oak is... Yes, sort of. It's och, like with a like loch. Alan's the Scot, I'm the Jew, he's the och, I'm the oi. Yes, and it is a bit sort of, it's like, it's like och is more, och, oh, for goodness sakes, och. Or, or if you do something <laughs> stupid, you go, och. So it's very equivalent to oi, actually. Alan actually casually says och all the time. I do. I imagine as Eli Gold, you said your share of oi. I'm, yes, and I'm actually back filming him. I don't, I haven't got any oys in the script yet, but I might pop one in the next one just for you. Oh, please. Would you for me, just as like a little Easter egg, a little Oy. tip of the hat to... <laughs> we actually talk about in, in the show the things that have made me an honorary Scot and Alan an honorary Jew. It's, yes. you know, one of, the big, one of the big turning points in this intense drama that he and I are performing. <laughs> <A> crossover moment. <laughs> Let's get to the show. You are both amazingly gifted storytellers and Ari we know you can sing from your association with Pink Martini. Alan everybody on the planet knows how well you sing from Cabaret and Forward. So what do you sing and talk about in Och and Oi? 
Well, I think you've touched on something that makes the show work, which is that despite our seeming to be very different, we actually have a lot in common. And yes. we are both storytellers. We do both enjoy sharing a laugh, sharing a song. And it's that banter, the kind of unexpected pairing, I think, that makes this work so well. Yeah. How it all came about was we'd met and we'd actually sang a song together. I sang a song with Ari when he did a show at Joe's Pub in New York a few years ago. But, we'd, you know, Ari had interviewed me a couple of times for, like, evenings about when I had a book out and stuff. Live events I, on stage, those sorts yes. of things. And after one of them, I, we, and I, I, we just got on really well and had a really good banter and sort of, you know, and I'm like, I'm the cookie flighty Alan and Ari's the serious journalist. And, uh, but of course, we're not really either of those things wholly. So I, one time after we'd done an event, we were coming off and I said, gosh, you know, we have such a good rapport. We should do a show together. And, uh, and he went, don't joke about a thing like that. <laughs> I said, I will absolutely take you up on that offer if you're serious. And yes. when was and that? Was, that was um, three years ago. Like June of 2019. Ooh. And I remember that vividly because then we met in July for one weekend in New York, in August for one weekend in D.C. And the next time we saw each other was September when we debuted our show in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And we had yes. this big national tour planned. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And so we kind of sat on this show for two years. And now we're so excited to be able to reintroduce it to the world and bring it to these cities that we've been waiting to go to, like Atlanta. Yes. You talk about how you're similar. Have people told you you kind of look like brothers? Oh, I'm so flattered. Well, me too. That means I look like a movie star. <laughs> and I look like a serious journalist. <laughs> no, but I sometimes wonder when we do perform live whether people are surprised to see what I actually look like and whether people are surprised to hear that Alan has a Scottish accent. Because <laughs> yes. people are used to hearing my voice but not seeing me live. And people are used to seeing Alan speak with an accent that is American, English, yeah. German, whatever. <laughs> well, but you know, when Alan introduced Mystery on PBS, I mean... I am Alan Cumming, and this is Masterpiece Mystery. Could you have gone any further over the top? I mean, Mount Everest is not a high enough. Oh, I've got further to go. I've, de I've definitely, I could go further. Don't, don't, don't tempt me. <laughs> but we loved it. We loved it because indeed, Ari, we're so accustomed to his brilliance with dialects. Who would think he was Scottish? Well, one of the things I learned from reading Alan's new best-selling memoir, Baggage, is that when oh, he was thanks. in drama school, the Scottish dialect was frowned upon. And that mm. was part of the reason you became so good at doing other dialects, was because yes. you were told nobody wanted to see anybody perform with a Scottish dialect. And so it was scandalous when you did, was it Macbeth or Hamlet, with a Scottish ha Hamlet was voice. Yeah, when I did Hamlet, Hamlet, that was sort of a huge thing that there was a... There was a so I played Hamlet when I was in 93 in London, you know, in, in tour and then in London. And I was sort of 28 and uh, the sort of wunderkind. And um, I did it with a Scottish accent. And there was a cartoon in the in the, one of the newspapers. And it said, uh, you know, there should be a sign. Well, there was an article that said there should be a sign outside the Donmar warehouse saying that not all of the dialogue or the language of Shakespeare will be understood as it's been spoken in a Scottish accent. And then there was a cartoon of me holding the skull, saying, alas, poor Yorick, see you, Jimmy. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's see you, Jimmy is like an inside joke that Scottish people and English people would get. It's I like, see you, Jimmy is like, you know, like when someone's going to pick a fight, they go, see you, Jimmy. 
Uh, I'm going to blah, blah. See, see, one of the helpful things about Alan and I doing this show together is that I can serve as the interpreter for the Americans who might not get all of his Scottish idioms. How about the the last time we did it? And I didn't realize that for years now, literally years, I've been saying when I said that something was false, I would say, oh, it was a tissue of lies. Yeah, I've and never it was heard only on stage that I discovered that that nobody in America knows what that means. Well, when the Ari other told thing me. you said that I had never heard before was laughing like a drain. Is, oh yeah, laughing like a drain. Lois, have you ever heard anyone say laughing like a drain? A drain, as in a drain. sink? Yeah, no. like a drain. Like it goes, a... the water goes down. No, I have not. No. Okay, thank you. So I'm not just ignorant. No, and I've been to See, Scotland a few times. These are, these are the valuable lessons that audience members <laughs> will take away from an evening with me and Alan. You'll have linguistic expansion of your horizons. Oh. You will up the walk away with new turns of phrase. So how much is scripted and how much just flows from each of you? Well, hopefully it all flows. And well, the thing, I, the thing is, I like when people think it, we're all just making it up as we go along because that sort of means we're we're faking spontaneity really well. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it's it's fairly scripted. It's very very well structured, and but we do a bit of ad libbing, of course, exactly and each other. the same. No, it's never the same. The next. But it's it's not. I mean, what's so fun play. is that, as you can tell, Alan and I can, have a talent for sort of egging each other on and pushing each other's buttons and, uh, you know, ribbing each other a little bit, and that's what we do on stage every night. Yes. And we might be talking about the same subjects and singing the same songs, but there's always a little bit of the unexpected. So the songs, that's a set. We know what. Oh yeah. You know what you're going to. Yeah. What What are some of them? Can you share? Mm. Well. A range of things. I mean, a, a very eclectic range. We sort of start with this medley of kind of old standards, and then we do. Uh, Addy does a, a beautiful Scottish song. I we've uh, got a little we, bit of pop music, a little, a little bit, bit of pop. Um, a, a, unknown um, we do a little, little old known Bette Midler tune. Bette Midler song <gasps> that nobody's ever heard duets. of. As you can see, we're avoiding naming specific songs because we want it to be a little bit surprising. A surprise. One of the things that I love about the genre of cabaret, which this is, is that you can mix Broadway and pop music and American standard show tunes and more formal things, and they all just kind of blend together as part of this evening of surprises. I think of cabaret as sort of a smorgasbord. The actual form of cabaret is like a smorgasbord. I love saying that word. And it's sort of, you know, one moment you can be sort of talking about something really serious and the next moment you're laughing like a drain. And then, uh, you know, the next minute you're singing a song, the next minute you're crying. It's just got this very, this possibility of just turning everything on a sixpence. I really like that. Do you say mm-hmm. turning on a sixpence? Turning everything on a sixpence. No, that's a first for me. That, oh my God. Thank you for another one. expanding our linguistic horizons. Alan, one of the things that I loved, one of the many things I love about Scotland and Scots is the degree of expressiveness. I have thought that the Scots are sort of like the Italians of Northern Europe. Is that fair? <laughs> The food's I, not um, as good, I, though. I, I, I like that. What did you say? I said the food's not as good, though. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but Well, I, I like that in terms of we're very emotional, definitely, and sentimental. And, in, in, you know, I think sentimental is now a thing. Sentiment is sort of seen as a negative thing. I think over-sentimentality could maybe be a negative thing, but I think sentimentality itself is not. Um, and we definitely have... I mean, I always say that the two favorite pastimes in Scotland are drinking and over-sentimentality. 
Uh, we do <laughs> give it. And when the, those two are combined, it's whew, watch out. But yeah, I think we're both, we're quite sort of um, fiery, but also soulful. And uh, we definitely, I mean, that's in a funny way, that's why I think I felt so uh, at home in New York when I moved there, is that everybody <laughs> in Scotland tells you what they think. And the same way in New York, you, know, you get lots of un unwanted or unsolicited opinions. And so that's like Scotland as well. I love that. I love, I love, and also like, you know, everybody knows me in Scotland. So it's so hilarious when I go back. Alan is the only person <laughs> I've ever known who cannot walk a single city block without somebody pointing to him or whispering to the person they're walking with or saying, where do I know you from? Or better yet, they say to somebody walking with him, where do I know him from? And Alan <sighs> says, I can hear you. That's, yes, I always say I can hear you. I say, can I, or when they say to him, I'm walking with Grant or something, can I take a picture of him? And I'm like, I'm right here. I can hear you. I think it's funny when people decide to like think that you must they have to ask someone else. How refreshing that you love it, that you're not jaded or want to hide from it, that you relish. Do you love that. it, Alan? Well, you said I, you love it. Here's the thing. I made a decision a long time ago that I would rather find a way to deal with the more negative to me aspects of being famous, the sort of the fact that people come up to you or the people, you know, the, just the, the lack of anonymity and the huge amounts of self-consciousness that you have to deal with. I made a decision that I had to deal with that because I wanted to live a life where I would still be able to go out into the world and have fun and engage with people rather than stay in my house or behind my gated, uh, you know, in my gated home. And I think I've done that quite successfully and I've made myself very available to, to the world. But also I have rules and I, and I think I'm like I talk to other people um, who are famous and I you know I when people come up to me I sometimes say things like you know I don't want to take a photo because if I take a photo with you I'll have to take a photo with everybody and I'm just having a drink with my friends here and my entire night will become about taking photos and when you just talk to people and are kind and explain to, to them like a like a friend or a, or a colleague they really really appreciate it and it's like 99.9% .9 successful that I how I maneuver myself in in the world and I think you know some places you go it gets a little overwhelming but then, you know, you've always got a choice to leave. But I, 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 I still feel very present in the world. And I have made even my bar in New York City, the one that Ari, um, oh. well, of course, people on the radio won't know, but Ari is wearing a club coming T-shirt yes. right now. That's very With promoting. an image of Alan illustrated by his husband, Grant. That's right. But this Smoking bar is such it. an amazing place. I mean, I know we're speaking to an audience of Atlantans or Atlanteans, but if you ever make it to New York, club coming is such a magical destination. It really is, isn't it? And, and I think it's my spirit. That's what I've done. I kind of have made a place that's got my spirit. And so that's nice as well. So that when I, when I, when I go, when people go there, I feel they're, you know, getting a wee bit of me. Um, and then when I go there, I always go behind the bar so I can both Then they bartend. get a lot of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, any place that has a signature cocktail called Up and Coming has got Thank to you. be good. Yes. <laughs> you know, right. I was actually, when Alan was upstate recovering from COVID, I was at his house in New York City and for the first time saw the collection of unsold perfumes, soaps, and lotions that he created in what year was that? And they are called Coming in a Bar is the name of the bar soap. That's right. Um, coming in a <laughs> coming Bottle all over. is the lotion. Coming all over is the lotion. Uh, coming all over coming is the clean. lotion. <laughs> Coming clean is the show. This is okay for public Ooh. radio because it's Alan's last name. Yeah. It is strictly a <laughs> yes. reference to we Alan's last name. And, uh, that is all coming we are off buff. Here. Coming off buff is the scrub. <laughs> oh, but, yes, I didn't see the scrub. Those are the ones down in my basement. Were you snooping around my basement? <laughs> what year was that? <laughs> well, like a thousand years ago. They're probably all off by now. The only one I use <laughs> is the soap because I think soaps don't go off. 
And that is my favourite, coming in a bar. It doesn't get much better than that. Mm. Unless you are at Club Comic. That's right. This, this might be a good place to note that the dialogue in our show is not strictly safe for public radio. Um, NSFW. It is a fun, body, risque evening that is not vulgar or violent, but maybe a little bit racy. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Alan Cumming and Ari Shapiro. They'll perform Oh and Oi, a considered cabaret, at center stage in Atlanta tomorrow evening. Ari, I wanted to ask both of you about something you touched on a few minutes ago, Alan's memoir, Baggage. Alan, you've written two memoirs. Yes. Brilliant. You, you are an amazing writer. Ari? Clearly, you're not such a bad writer or <laughs> oh, journalist thanks. or reporter. And yet, I, I just marvel, not that you each have talents beyond those for which you're best known. Yours as a journalist, Ari Allen, yours as an actor. But where you find the time? For that creative energy to put that part of your creativity into practice. Alan's the busiest man I've ever met, and I've met some very busy people in my life. Am I really? For, for me, speaking personally, the balance between performing live with Alan or with Pink Martini and doing a two-hour nightly news program every day... They're both time consuming and they both uh, take a lot of energy, but each one feeds the other. So I may take a week's vacation and tour with Alan or take time off and go perform with Pink Martini. And either of those could be exhausting, but they're exhausting in an exhilarating way and in a fun way. And I come back feeling somehow, even though this sounds paradoxical, both drained and energized and ready to get back into mm. the next thing. Alan, I don't know if that's your experience too. Oh, totally. I feel like I do, you know, with all the different things I do, people are always like, oh gosh, you know, how do you do all these? And I actually think it's about focus in that I am very, very focused uh, in the moment. Uh, on what I'm doing, and then I drop that, and I immediately focus on the next thing. I mean, it's kind of you could say there's other other names for it, I suppose, but I like to think of it as focus. And um, <laughs> and I, I'm also focused on having fun. You know, I just think you've, I just be really committed to what you're doing when you're doing it, and that means. And also, you know, fun is the answer. I I do all these different things because I like them. There's nothing I do that I don't like, and if I don't like it, I'll stop it. There's a story we tell on the show about the origin of the original Club Coming, which was when Alan was doing Cabaret on Broadway for the second time, and he was also filming The Good Wife by day. So yeah. he's doing eight performances a week, starring in a Broadway show and also playing a leading role in a TV network drama. And he was concerned that he wouldn't be able to go out and have fun with his friends, which if I were in that position would be the last thing I would <laughs> And so he got an alcohol company to sponsor his dressing room backstage <laughs> at the Broadway theater where Cabaret was happening. And That's that right, was baby. the original club coming. And that tells you more about Alan than I think any other story. Well, you are social. I wonder if you ever feel slighted, both of you, by the fact that... That I haven't won a Tony yet? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> No, sorry. So I'm sorry. Where's my Peabody? 
It's up and coming, Ari. Maybe, <laughs> maybe after this, if there's a category for the cabaret. No, people are categorized, and others like to put you into these neat little boxes, niches, and clearly you can be a polymath. Do you resent it when some people say, why are you singing when you really ought to be immersed in, in your journalism, Ari? When I started singing with Pink Martini some 12 or 13 years ago, I was really afraid that it would somehow harm my journalism career, that people would judge me or label me or it would hold me back because they would think, oh, somebody who does that can't interview the president. And I realized over the years that that voice was not coming from anyone but me. That that was my own chip on my shoulder. Fantastic. And that once I let go of it, I actually wasn't being judged and I wasn't being held back and I could enjoy what I was doing. And that's been a realization and a process and it's been liberating. And And now I am able to really enjoy both of those things and occupy this place that feels like a unique expression of who I am and what I love to do. And I, and I feel really grateful for that. And NPR News has no problem with it. I mean, so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> Still in the air. I've had that in the past where people say, oh, why, you know, you just did a, you know, Shakespeare film or Shakespeare on Broadway or something. Why are you doing a Smurfs film or why are you, you know, doing something frothy? And I Spice think this world, Spice World and the list goes on. There's a lot. I mean, and my, I always say to them, first of all, you're a snob. Right. That's because basically they're saying, I think you should be doing more rarefied, heightened things that I think you should be doing. First of all, it's about them, what they want. But actually, um, you know, like you say, that when, when I come to do something new, something different, whatever I've done before kind of fuels me in the new thing because I've been, done something different. And I've, if I've done something light and funny and frothy, I, I have used a different part of myself and I'm ready to kind of then let some of the darker side out in the next job. So there's that. And there's also the fact that, you know, you have to earn money to live. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't, sometimes the dark, despairing, rarefied things don't pay. But Smurfs do. Smurfs pay, let me tell you. Smurfs um, pay. It's the gift that keeps on giving. But I, but so th like this year, I'm going to do a dance theater piece for like four months. So a quarter, no, a third of my year, I'm going to be, you know, working on this bizarre dance piece uh, for, 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 hard, for no money and for what well, I'm being paid. But you know what I mean? It does not keep the dogs in milk bones, let me tell you. And so <laughs> I've, I've um, you know, the rest of the year I'm doing some things, other things that I that will sort of subsidize that. Sometimes they're things that I actually find a challenge and have all those other ingredients. Other, the other thing, the next thing I'm going to do is not that. It's just sort of a fun sort of thing that will uh, tax me in a different way, but, will, but, but they actually will be taxed more because I'll be getting paid more. <laughs> but it, I, I, I keep going back to your memoirs, which are so brilliantly written and so emotional. Um, how long did each take you? Oh, well, long, uh, several, I mean, a while. I mean, years, uh, because I was doing it. I mean, the last one, the baggage, uh, uh, came, I mean, because of the pandemic, I had a long, the longest stretch ever. You know, I think many people could say that actually about the, their uh, writing or artistic output during the pandemic. It was the longest time, an uninterrupted time I had to write ever in my life. And so I kind of 
got got the measure of the book and was able to finish it during that time. But you know, not my father's son. I wrote. I used to on my days off from the Good Wife. That's when I, was, I wrote it during that. I would go to this place before. I, now I have a study in my house, so I write there. But when I I used to go to this place called the Writers Room. It was in in New York, and it's a place you sort of join, become a member, and you go into this big big room with all these little booths, with and nobody's allowed to speak. And um, and so it's just all these writers just sort of in a in a wow. and it's actually a great sort of energy to sort of feel, you know, encouraged and you can speak in the kitchen and there's a little bit you can go for a lie down as well. You can have <laughs> these little bean bags to lie down. I loved it. And it was really so I actually would go there and write. But it took me, you know, a long time. And I've done, you know, se- several books like that. Alan, I remember your review of David Sedaris's book, I think it oh, yes. was 2018. Uh, that was mm. a fabulous essay, and you called his humor Sedarian. And when I interviewed David, he was in Atlanta the day after that Sunday Times review of yours came out, and I said, my God, that Alan Cumming could extol your talent that way, you must be soaring. And he said, Sidarian or am I Davidian? And I thought, <laughs> okay, that was good. That oh, was that's great. Perfect. Well, I thought you were going to say something. Like, oh, he was just so overwhelmed with, with I know, but actually he came back with a better gag. I love Which that. Which was Sidarian, <laughs> wasn't yeah. it? Yes, it was yeah. Sidarian. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, People become actors or become journalists for all kinds of different reasons. But when people look at Alan and look at me and say, oh, you're doing so many different things, I I think both of us actually see it as different ways of doing the same thing, which is connecting with people. And because for the last two years, we have had to connect with people from a distance, whether that's in books or television programs or radio broadcasts, to be able to share a room with an audience and perform live in front of people who are reacting in real time, experiencing a thing that will never again happen in quite that way, with quite that assemblage of people, feels like such a privilege and a way of creating connection that we haven't had access to for so long. That's what I'm so looking forward to about about this cabaret that we're bringing to Atlanta. I, I just think having the opportunity to do that in person with an audience, going through something together is an incredible privilege that we've missed. Yeah. Tony Award-winning actor Alan Cumming and NPR All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro. They'll perform Oh and Oi, a considered cabaret, at center stage in Midtown tomorrow evening, March 29th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with the voice of Welcome to Night Vale, Cecil Baldwin. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. (laughs) 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you've heard of Cecil Baldwin, then no doubt you've actually heard him, too. He's most famous for playing the narrator of the wildly popular fiction podcast Welcome to Night Vale, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary in June. Cecil will be in Atlanta this Wednesday, March 30th, for Night Vale's latest live show, The Haunting of Night Vale, when he recently spoke with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Baldwin began with an overview of the creepy yet wonderful lunacy that is Welcome to Night Vale. So Welcome to Night Vale is a podcast about a character named Cecil, which is pretty easy to remember as my name is also Cecil. But Cecil lives in this small town in the American Southwest, somewhere in the American Southwest. And he has a radio show in which he talks about normal community radio kind of stuff. Um, uh, the local high school football team, the goings on at city council, um, the traffic report, the weather report, things like that. Except in the town of Nightvale, every conspiracy theory you've ever heard is not only true, but everybody in Nightville just treats it as completely normal and just tries to move on with their day. <laughs> so the local football team is a local high school football team, except they have a player that has two heads and only one of them speaks English and one of them speaks Spanish. <laughs> or the city council is some sort of multi-headed eldritch abomination that as soon as anything goes wrong in Nightvale, they pack a bag and they go to Bermuda and hope that whatever disaster is attacking Night Vale just completely works itself out. That one sounds pretty realistic, though. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Night Vale embraces its weirdness in the most wonderful way. And it's my understanding that the co-creators of the podcast are Jeffrey Craner and Joseph Fink, and that the original idea came from Joseph Fink's short stories. It's. Uh, I think it came from Joseph Fink's short stories, but more so about he grew up in uh, Southern California, and I think it was he said that sort of drive from you know Southern LA to Las Vegas and just the little weird towns that you hit upon the way, and he was you know kind of just wondering like I wonder how weird these little hmm. you know two stoplight towns get, and uh, he met up with the co-writer Je uh, Jeffrey Craner working for a New York theater company called the New York Neo-Futurists, which is also where I met them. And 
it was just happenstance that these two writers got together. They both really loved podcasts, but at the time, I don't think they saw any podcast that did fiction that was not kind of ye old radio hour. Mm. Because there's tons of there's tons of those, and some are really amazing, and some of them are like less than amazing. But they all tried to hit upon that 1930s retro sound, and they were like, "Well, what if we use podcasting more as a chance to make something that's like more off Broadway, like a play, as opposed to you know like a retro feel." And I happened to be in this theater company, and I was an actor in New York City trying to get my voiceover career off the ground. And I had been told my whole life that I have a, quote, radio voice, and I should totally be on the radio, <laughs> and I should totally do commercials for TV and radio, but nobody was buying it. So... <laughs> I wrote a play about how frustrating it is to be an actor in New York City, where literally if you have the ability to speak, then you could potentially get a job. And the three of us got together and they said, we have this crazy idea for a podcast that's an episodic, ongoing fictional radio show. And I was like, great, let's do this and see what happens. And it's now 10 years later. That's it's now amazing. 10 years later. Wow, that's amazing. I just assumed that one day someone heard you talking on the street and they came up to you and said, I'm going to make you a star. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so Night Vale was your first voice acting gig? Pretty much. Yeah, I I found that like the commercial world of voice acting, it was just so hard. And, you know, I... I feel like if I had been born in the 1950s or the 1960s, I would be set. Mm. But I think in the commercial world, everybody, you know, kind of wants the sort of best friend, Paul Rudd kind of sounding voice. And I just, that's just not the way I'm built. No. But luckily, um, I am a classically trained actor. I did Shakespeare and classical theater for years. I've done experimental plays off Broadway. Um, and all of that kind of went into this process project, which is Welcome to Night Vale. Not to mention the fact that I love horror movies. I love David Lynch and David Cronenberg and schlocky and highbrow and everything in between. So as soon as I read the script for Night Vale with all of its weirdness and its, you know, sci-fi horror fantasy leanings, I knew exactly where I was. Well, your character on Night Vale is obviously the anchor of the show, and he's developed right alongside the rest of the weird town. And as an audience, we got to hear Cecil fall in love and then marry the scientist with perfect hair, Carlos. And I was wondering if you had any influence in the development of Cecil's story as a queer love story. You know, I I, I think I do. I did. Um, in, in that being a gay man and being as honest as I can in making whatever art that I can, I read the script. And I think this character, Carlos, who is Cecil's now husband, um, was sort of introduced as a weird outsider. He was a scientist who's come to Night Vale and... But the way he was described by these, uh, by these two writers struck to me as a gay love story. You know, Cecil spent all of his time talking about how handsome he was and how perfect his hair is and how perfect his teeth are. And I sat down and I was like, this sounds to me like a gay love story. So even though I did not, 
you know, go to the writers and say, I have notes. I think that we should make this a gay love story. I just jumped in and read it that way. And the writers picked up on it and they said, well, gosh, if Cecil's really into this, then they we started to write it a little bit more. And then a year later, they went on their first date. And then a few years later, they got married. And then, then after a few years, they had a kid. And it's one of those things where there's a reality about Welcome to Night Vale that I think the audience really responds to. Mm. So you can have alien space invaders, you can have tiny civilizations that are making war on the town of Night Vale. <laughs> But the heart of it is based in our own personal lives. And we tell these stories based in personal stories. So for me, the idea of, you know, meeting somebody and not really getting a crush on them and not knowing if they're into you, that to me was the most exciting part. And all that sci-fi horror stuff took care of itself. That's so fantastic. And now the live show that's touring, The Haunting of Night Vale, is a story that's focused on you and Carlos, right? Yeah, it's, uh, let's see, Carlos and Cecil have decided to build their own house, which I'm sure anybody who has ever tried to buy or build a house knows what a horror that is. But of course, it's Night Vale. So even though they're building this house from scratch, they find that this house is already haunted. (laughs) So how can a house that's not even been built yet have a ghost? And that is the story that unfolds. (laughs) For those who haven't seen a live Night Vale performance before, can you go into a little description? Because it's not exactly a show with costumes or sets. It's set up more like a behind the scenes look at the recording, right? We really embraced the idea of um, like radio theater for the live shows. So it's very very simple. We have a musician on stage, uh, Disparition. He does all of our backing music. It's myself. Uh, We have guest artists, uh, guest actors who come in um, that are kind of fan favorites. So like Tamika Flynn and, you know, other characters that, you know, are favorites from the podcast. But we don't put on costumes. We don't have a set. We don't really try to transport the audience magically into the town of Night Vale because it's a radio show. So we really let people live in the sound of it, the feel of it. And we understand that you get it. We're just people behind microphones performing a script. So it kind of lives somewhere in between theater, stand-up comedy, and radio drama. It's interesting how well it translates from a podcast to a live performance. I saw you guys when you came through in maybe 2014 with the performance that was titled The Librarian. And it was so interesting to have something that I'm so used to listening to alone as a podcast by myself turn into this live communal experience. There's something so intimate about podcasting. Most people listen to podcasts when they're by themselves, in their car, you're walking your dog, you're going to work, things like that. And what was interesting is that when Nightville started to become a success, the two writers, myself, um, uh, Meg Bashwinner, who is uh, the voice of the credits and kind of our de facto MC for the live shows, all of us got our start performing on stage. So it made sense for us to do this podcast and then take it and adapt it for the stage. We're not really film people. So making a short film wasn't really in our wheelhouse, but doing it live really was. For me, getting to perform this 
um, this character and this script in front of a live audience means that you're moving from a place where podcasting is so individual to a place where you're in a theater and it's about the communal experience. Now, for a, a podcast that has kind of embraced its individuality, and we understand that our listeners are very individual, LGBTQIA, they find things like eldritch abominations and weird stories, like they really love that. These are people that don't always get to like interact in the real world. So not only has Night Vale been a lightning rod for people in the digital world, but it's been a lightning rod for communities in your own home. So it's been amazing getting to tour literally all over the world and see people come together in a theater space and have this shared experience of something that they normally listen to at night by themselves, maybe with one or two friends, all of a sudden you're with hundreds of people that love it in the same way that you do. It's a little bit like doing Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh my gosh, it has that comparison. Kind of, yeah, it has that like cult feel to it because the people that love it really, really love it. And for us, the performers, we get to feed off that energy. We get to meet our fans. We get to see the cosplay that people come dressed as the glow cloud or as Erica the angel or as Cecil or Kevin or Carlos. And people love to dress up and come to these shows. And that is so much fun for us. It feeds us as performers and we get to interact with them. So all of these live shows that we've been doing all have some component of interaction with the audience and it's changed every single show. And it's really fun getting to work on, perfect, perform, and tour these live shows because they're so, so different than the podcast. Welcome to Night Vale, Cecil Baldwin, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Trobes. We'll return with more of their conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. If you are just tuning in, we're listening to Cecil Baldwin, the voice behind the popular fiction podcast, Welcome to Night Vale. Speak with City Light senior producer, Kim Drobes. You know, you mentioned the energy of feeding off of a live audience. What's it like having live music on stage with you? Oh, it's so amazing. Uh, Disparition, he makes all of these sort of background, it's like dark ambient beats that, you know, go underneath the podcast that really set the mood. And when I'm performing, John Bernstein, Disparition, is on stage with me. And it's really that music that helps set the tone. Music has always been a huge part of Welcome to Night Vale. Um, we have what we call the weather segment. So in every single episode, Cecil Palmer 
will say, and now the weather. And it cuts to not a normal weather report, but an independent artist, musician. And there'll be a song that has nothing to do with the podcast, but it's I think Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner's way of not only boosting individual indie writing, but also individual indie music as well. And we carry that into the live shows. So for Atlanta, we're bringing with us Eliza Rickman, who is an amazing singer, composer. She has this lovely, beautiful, ethereal voice that even though her songs don't directly relate to the plot, of whatever Welcome to Nightville is doing, it sets the mood, it really sets the tone. And she'll come out, she'll do a set, she's like our opener. Um, we thank her, we love her, we do the live component of the Welcome to Nightville show. And sure enough, at a certain point, we cut to the weather and Eliza Rickman will come out and she'll transport us to a completely different place, almost like a palate cleanser. And then we go back into the finale of the Welcome to Nightville show. No doubt. I have been turned on to many an independent artist from the weather on Welcome to Nightville. Yeah. For me, I'm so bad at finding new musicians to listen to. And just by working on this project, not only have I gotten to discover new music, but I've gotten to work and tour and live with these musicians. And it's really opened my eyes as an actor theater kid just how much blood, sweat, and tears musicians put into touring, into crafting songs and songwriting, and what it takes for a musician to tour. It's been a really beautiful, beneficial uh, two-way street, to be sure. You mentioned that many people come to the show in cosplay. Art's a big part of Night Vale, and the fan art that people started creating for the show took off immediately, right? Yeah, it was really interesting. And people ask us all the time, oh, did you um, start this or did you, you know, how did this begin? And really, this speaks to the power of the audience and independent internet fandom. So uh, for me, I had been making Welcome to Night Vale, the podcast for maybe like a year, a year and a half. And I was hanging out with a friend and she was really big on Reddit at the time. And she's like, um, you need to come over here because people are drawing pictures of you, but they don't look anything like you. You have like <laughs> tattoos and a third eye and you're wearing purple all the time. And it doesn't look anything at all like you. And I realized what was happening was people had discovered Welcome to Night Vale, this independent sort of off-Broadway avant-garde theater piece. And while they were listening to it, they were drawing. And then they started sharing those drawings with other people on Reddit, on Tumblr, on Twitter. And those people would discover the podcast and those people would add their interpretations. So it became this kind of open source audience share of what do you think of when you listen to this show? And the, the writers have been very careful. They've never really described what Cecil looks like. They've not really described what Carlos or what uh, Kevin or these other major characters really look like. So people have been able to add their own expression on top of this podcast, whether it's gender or sexuality or race or anything like that, they're able to take ownership of this radio drama 
and really put themselves into it. Because that's the difference between radio and theater or film. When you cast somebody in a play or in a TV show or a film, that's who you're seeing. And it's really hard to divorce your own imagination from that interpretation. But on the radio, the listener is creating these worlds for themselves. And I think it's a testament to not only the show, Welcome to Night Vale, but the dedication of the fans that they were able to put themselves into the show and expand from there. Hmm. Theater of the mind, right? Absolutely. So you said off the top that you're a fan of horror and you are getting to indulge that fandom yourself now with your new podcast, Random Number Generator Horror Podcast Number Nine. How fun. Good for you. Yes. So during the pandemic, uh, we we were supposed to do this multi-city Welcome to Nightville tour. And I think we got two shows in and everything shut down. Mm. And, you know, the world freaked out. Everyone freaked out. We had no idea what to do. The podcast, obviously, we could still keep making that because it's socially distanced. And, you know, I'm just, it's me and a microphone, right. really. But the idea of these live shows, we felt like we really wanted to give something back to our fans for the last two years. And one of the writers, Jeffrey Craner, had mentioned that he's surrounded by all these horror lovers, <laughs> these horror movie fan lovers. And... It was never really his bag. He always felt a little too sensitive or he was just kind of squeamish about horror movies. And I love kind of being a, a, a guru or a Sherpa for people and saying, wait, 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 let me guide you through the world of horror films. So it's not just slashers or it's not just torture porn or what people think of as like, the most intense, gritty parts of horror. Really, horror films have this huge breadth of artistic and like artistic interpretation. And oftentimes it's just the schlocky ones that get the attention because those are silly and fun to watch. But we forget about movies that have real artistic merit. So Jeffrey and I created this uh, podcast in which we kind of put it up to the dice and we match a style with a scare and then that leads us to our next horror movie and the two of us just talk about it we unpack it we have a thoughtful but fun conversation about these horror films that maybe there's a little something going on here that's more than what people think so movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare of the 1950s or Rosemary's Baby with just how far gaslighting and how like that fear of the other when you're living on top of people in a city can go. The idea that there's things you can explore in horror movies and in podcasts like Welcome to Night Vale, that if you were to like write an essay about it, it would seem very esoteric and dry. But when you put it into a fantasy or a sci-fi or a horror movie setting, all of a sudden you can comment on social mores that you wouldn't necessarily be able to touch if you were drop dead serious and making very serious art. That's a great explanation. And I'm wondering as a scientific experiment, how are things going for Jeffrey? Is he coming over to the darker side? He, I'm so proud of him. <laughs> We've been doing this show for a year now because it's a ton of fun. 
And we've gotten to kind of push the boundaries. We found movies that we like, movies that we just said, oh, this movie is not so good, but we're glad we watched it and then had a chance to talk about it afterwards. A lot of movies are kind of like that, where you, you see it and you think, yeah, that was okay. But in discussion, we actually realize there's a lot more going on and it says more about us than it does about the film itself. It's been a really fun and interesting kind of tentpole to get us through the pandemic years. And is this your first experience with a non-scripted podcast? It is. It is. I've been a guest on uh, non-scripted podcasts, you know, sort of as the voice of Night Vale. But this is the first time that I've been able to really kind of craft a podcast, a conversation podcast. And listen, we're learning as we go. It's a conversation. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's serious. We have guests on the show. Sometimes they're fun. Sometimes they're serious. (laughs) But the thing that I think is really important is that we're always truthful and honest and we go with our gut. If we like a movie, we like it and we say it. If we don't like a movie, you know, we always try to like understand that whenever an artist puts something out into the world, a filmmaker puts something out into the world, they took a lot of time and a lot of effort to put that thing into the world. So we try to critique without being, without dunking on it, you know? We always try to like punch up in that way. But sometimes a movie is just so bad. (laughs) But even in its badness, it can still be good. Absolutely. Welcome to Night Vale, Cecil Baldwin, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Tropes. The Haunting of Night Vale will be on stage at Variety Playhouse this Wednesday, March 30th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Synchronicity Theater's production Legacy of Light. Plus, the Pretty Pats Bandit is coming to Georgia Ensemble Theater And our series, Speaking of the Arts, features fine art photographer Jody Fawcett. City Light senior producer is Kim Tropes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.